This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. It's October 5th, 2000. The warm winds of democracy have been blowing across the Balkans, the Eastern European region that was once Yugoslavia. So the key figure that emerges out of this pro-democracy movement during the 90s is Zoran Džinđić. American journalist Lily Lynch is editor-in-chief of Balkanist magazine. She lived in the former Yugoslavia for over a decade. In 2001, Zoran Džinđić became the first democratically elected prime minister of Serbia. He's the leader of a liberal democratic party, and he has been described as sort of the Serbian JFK. He spoke German and English and could speak very well to the West, and the West had a lot of hopes that he would kind of represent a new Serbia. Džinđić came to power on the promise that he would root out organized crime. Criminal gangs had been on the rise in Serbia since the early 90s. Putting a stop to them would be his number one priority. But he never had a chance. Zoran Džinđić was shot outside this government building in Belgrade. He was hit in the stomach and back reportedly by sniper fire from across the street. He was taken to a hospital in Belgrade where he died shortly afterwards. His murder sent a clear message. Serbia's criminal gangs were more determined, better funded and more powerful than any politician. In Serbia, they were the real bosses. I'm Natalia Antalava. I'm a journalist based in Eastern Europe, and I'm going to take you into the world of Serbia's most brazen jewel thieves. The most daring and successful diamond thieves in the world. 30 to 40 seconds. In, they're out. They've stolen half a billion dollars worth of valuables. Two well-dressed men strolled into an exclusive jewelry store in London and walked out with $66 million in jewels. They're called the Pink Panthers. They're a loosely connected crew of overeducated, underemployed, ambitious young people who rose from the ashes of the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s to commit elaborate smash-and-grab heists all across the globe, often in broad daylight. This is Infamous International, the Pink Panther story. Episode 3, Niche, Den of Thieves. Last time we learned how the Pink Panthers developed an international brand. They traveled to the world's most glamorous cities, London, Paris, Monaco, even Tokyo, to commit brazen heists with speed and precision, sometimes employing elaborate costumes and ingenious techniques to fool security measures. 
they escape on speedboats or luxury cars, or they disappear into the crowd. Each crime is more cinematic than the last, culminating in the heist at the Wafi Mall in Dubai. There were three young criminals at the center of that story. The mastermind, Mladen Lazarevich, his girlfriend and co-conspirator, Bojana Mitic, and their close friend, the dashing Milan Lepoya. All three in their 20s, and all from the same hometown, the Serbian city of Niš. So how did these bright young things get wrapped up in the high-stakes world of international crime? To answer that question, we need to go back to the 1980s and the height of the Cold War. Serbia was still part of Yugoslavia, an Eastern European country made up of six states, including Bosnia and Croatia. Serbia was the largest of them, the dominant power. And at that time, Yugoslavia was a kind of gateway to the West. Journalist Lili Lynch again. It was sort of in between the Soviet Union and the West. It was considerably more open in many ways than the Eastern Bloc's countries. So it was kind of unique in Eastern Europe. A popular misconception about Yugoslavia is that it is a neighboring country of the Soviet Union. In actuality, it borders seven European countries, none of them being Russia. Citizens here are free to come and go as they please, as are tourists, who need only a passport to enter the country. Local New York TV station KCBS ran that segment on their news magazine show Two on the Town back in 1986. You can hear how it works hard to put some distance between Yugoslavia and the Iron Curtain. This prosperous, thriving Yugoslavia was the legacy of the so-called benevolent dictator, Marshal Josip Tito. He ruled the country with an iron fist for over 30 years. But at least, things were stable then. In 1981, a year after Tito's death, the AP reported on his legacy. Many feared that the death of Tito would lead to the breakup of their nation. In many ways, Tito was the architect of modern Yugoslavia, the one figure with the prestige and charisma to unite a nation of diverse cultures and peoples. But aside from unity, he gave his country independence and pride. Journalist Jelena Zoric grew up in Tito's Yugoslavia. In the 80s, generally, everyone had a nice childhood. Jelena is more comfortable speaking Serbian, so we're hearing her through a translator. All of us who were kids, we were happy with our childhood. Our, as we say, ex-Yugoslavia, that's a country where the citizens used to sleep with their doors not locked. You, you were feeling completely safe because even if there were some criminals here, they would be immediately chased out of the country by our police. They were practically exported to the West. Mladen, Bojana and Milan grew up in this period of stability. My colleague, Ilan Greenberg, dug into their childhoods. Bojana grows up in Niche. This is a really old city. It dates from Roman times and it's got a ton of history. It has really a, a vibrant cafe culture uh, and a lot of bars, uh, which is kind of surprising. It was once a thriving industrial place. They called it Electronic City, but that started dying out in the 1980s. And what is it like for her to grow up in Niche? It was pretty typical, Natalia. She was raised in a very middle-class family. She was studious, bookish. We know this because we talked to one of her teachers, and he remembered her really well. 
Uh, she was one of his top students. She spoke several languages. He remembered that she wanted to be a lawyer. And what did you find out about Mladen Lazarevich and his early life? Like, what did he do before he meets Boyana? We weren't able to find out a lot about Mladen, uh, in his childhood years at least. The, the people we were able to reach, they say he was pretty small physically, uh, but he had a real confidence about him, almost a swagger. And, and people say he was also really smart. Milan Lepuya, on the other hand, has a much tougher time of it as a child. Here's Yelena Zorich. Lepuya was raised in one of the poorest neighborhoods of Nish. He was a chubby little boy who was playing often with his friends in the streets, like, you know, most of the people in these poor neighborhoods are growing up. A small kid with swagger and an attitude. A smart girl with big dreams. A chubby boy from the wrong side of town. But before they're even able to see what they can achieve in life, their whole world collapses. Good evening. We begin again tonight in Yugoslavia, which the U.S. believes may be on the verge of coming apart at the seams. International concern now focuses on the federal army and what action it may take against the two Yugoslav republics which have declared their independence, Slovenia and Croatia. ABC News reported on the sudden chaos that erupts when brutal far-right nationalist Slobodan Milosevic comes to power in Serbia. Almost immediately, Milosevic unleashes a decade of bloody wars. War in Croatia starts in 1992, and then Bosnia, and then Kosovo. The genocidal crimes of the 1990s Balkan Wars stunned the world. Mass killings, concentration camps, systematic rape. American media, like in that clip from PBS NewsHour, reports the horrors of the ethnic cleansing and the Serbian war crimes. In response, the UN, the EU and the US all impose crushing economic sanctions. Journalist Lily Lynch. Yugoslavia was put under sanctions. Serbia was put under sanctions. So this is devastating to the economy. This is a huge deal. The sanctions prohibit trade with the outside world. They cut off travel in and out of the country. Because of the bad politics we had, because of the wars, the country was completely closed. You couldn't go out of the country. Yelena Zoric remembers the devastating economic impact the sanctions had on her country. In the 90s, we had the biggest inflation on the whole planet. Like prices were skyrocketing every single day. The government cuts off heat and electricity to conserve energy. There are food shortages. Suicide rates skyrocket. Illicit trade, the black market, becomes the only game in town. The executive sanctions imposed on Serbia totally criminalizes the economy. Because you have sanctions, the supply chain is completely broken down. You can't find medicine, you can't find a steady stream of cigarettes. Smuggling becomes a huge part of the economy. And that really starts in the 90s and has never changed in Serbia. The fall of the Soviet Union, the devastating wars, and the growing black market all create a perfect climate for criminals. Yelena Zoric again. Our criminals who were chased, who were exported before the 90s, they started coming back to Serbia. They all just showed up out of nowhere. The sudden influx of returning criminals fuels the fast rise of Balkan gangs throughout the 1990s. 
And then, after years of atrocities by the Serbs, NATO moves to put an end to Milosevic's brutal war by bombing the capital city of Belgrade. The news hour with Jim Lehrer reported on the start of the NATO campaign. The air war over Kosovo and Yugoslavia began today. NATO's first wave attack included dozens of air and sea-launched cruise missiles. BBC News broadcast images of the devastation to the Western world. There's no doubt about the damage that a month of bombing has done to Yugoslavia. Some people are saying it's reduced the country to the level it was at in 1945. The NATO campaign helps end the wars. Milosevic is arrested and charged with war crimes in The Hague. He dies in prison while still standing trial. ABC News reports that his death robs his victims of a chance for justice. An investigation is underway into what killed the man known as the Butcher of the Balkans. Jailers in The Hague found former Yugoslavian President Slobodan Milosevic dead in his cell today. His death allows him to escape justice after four years of his war crimes trial. Here it is probably the place to say a few words about the post-Yugoslav war and especially with the role of Serbia. That's Dr. Jana Hashamova, chair of the Department of Slavic and East European Languages and Cultures at Ohio State University. Serbia was a dominant nation, somewhat similar to the position of Russia in the Soviet Union. After the Yugoslav War, Serbia lost that national identity of being the center of that federation. Serbs found themselves in an unfavorable situation, found themselves victimized by the West and, and NATO. The resentment for the West is strong. The people of Serbia are bitter about the NATO bombings and still feel the effects of a decade of economic sanctions. What was possible for them before the war was no longer possible, meaning having free access to the West, abilities to work. There was a resentment built to the West with its riches and wealth and, and flashy lifestyle. Isolation, lack of opportunity and simmering resentment. It could be enough to turn a good man bad, or a woman for that matter. And when they do turn bad, there is no better place to be than Niš, the hometown of Mladen, Bojana and Milan. In the Serbia and during the 90s, many people succeed in getting a lot of money. When the, some strong criminal groups uh, during the war, Niš was on the crossroads for those criminal groups. Gordana Bialetic is an investigative journalist based in Niš. And they used, uh, when there was not that much official control, to create a safe route for them. Uh, they could take drugs or anything wherever they wanted. And uh, southern Serbia is close to, to different borders. That's why their route it was uh, through Niš. So, in a country decimated by war and shunned by the world, the city of Niš becomes a crossroads between East and West, crime and opportunity, a bustling trading post for smugglers and thieves. Despite his humble beginnings, Milan Lepoja seems to thrive in post-war Serbia. He's smart and he's accepted into a prestigious university. 
but crime is all around him. In niche, it's just everywhere. Yelena Zorich again. As soon as he turned 18, he started doing little robberies, mostly in the little boutique shops when he was practically stealing branded clothing, which was very popular here. Milan is growing up fast, and his new lifestyle suits him. As I was telling you, he was pretty chubby when he was a teenager, so not very attractive to the girls. But then he lost some weight, and he was always well-dressed because he had all these designers' clothes on him that he was getting in in Italy. So he became even more popular with with the girls then, as he was getting more, more mature. For a while, he lives a double life. Student by day, thief by night. But Milan is developing a reputation, even beyond Serbia. By the time he's graduating high school, a school trip with his classmates shows just how recognizable he's become. So in the the 90s, there was a group of graduated high school uh, students. They went to their final school trip in, in Verona and they went to one of the boutiques just to check it out and to see some of the most famous Italian designers' clothes. And uh, when the manager of that shop, when he saw a group of the Serbian students coming in, he called security immediately because they knew about Milan Ljepoja. And there was actually a picture of him on the wall representing him as a criminal who was doing all these robberies in Italian boutiques. Meanwhile, Mladen Lazaric is quietly developing his own criminal reputation. He learns the art of car theft. He apprentices in home burglary and pickpocketing. Just like Milan, he shows natural talent for it. By this time, the late 1990s, a distinct two-tiered hierarchy has emerged within the criminal ecosystem of niche. Top of the chain in the crime was basically cigarette smuggling. That's investigative reporter Stevan Dojinovic, founder and editor-in-chief of the Crime and Corruption Reporting Network in Belgrade, Serbia. It may strange, but I mean, actually, cigarette smuggling was the top deals that you can have. So the biggest organized crime groups were actually controlling chain of the uh, cigarette smuggling. Uh, not everyone can really be involved in this. Cigarette smuggling is a lucrative business. And by necessity, those running the operation are connected to larger international crime syndicates. This criminal tier and niche becomes known for their flashy cars and full-body tattoos. And for their violence. One step down the criminal ladder, a loose network of thieves who work in the West and bring stolen goods and money back to Serbia. They might not be violent, but they're being actively recruited by violent people. Jelena Zoric again. They were looking for them in the local bars, also even in prisons, in various sports clubs, like boxing club, because they knew exactly what kind of people to look for. Like any good recruiter, these criminal organizations wanted high-quality candidates, people who are educated and well-spoken. 
They were not looking for the people who are using drugs, for example. They were not interested in that. That couldn't happen. But people who are ready to for the robberies, people who are ready, they were like testing them. When they were talking to potential new members of their clan, they were paying attention uh, if, uh, for example, their hands were shaking or their voice is shaking. So they were very selective in choosing new people who want to work for them. Vladan Lazarevich is the first to make the cut. He goes pro. Milan Lipoya is brought in soon after, and the two of them meet. And Boyana? Here's Alan Greenberg again. She finishes university, and she must have did really well because she gets into one of the top law schools in Serbia. And she was following her dream of becoming a lawyer. Remember, her teacher said that's what she always wanted to become. But this is post-war Serbia, and creating a prosperous life is incredibly difficult, even for an educated young professional. No, clearly things don't go as planned. Uh, so this is when Bojana, she meets Miladin. And it's not long after that that she drops out of law school, practically before it even begins. She fell in love with the wrong guy. Jelena Zoric. It's not that she had any specific background that turned her into this, but she she fell in love with the guy and she just started doing it with him because she was in love with him and she wanted to help him. So she trusted him completely. Boyana's relationship with Mladen Lazarevich isn't the only factor, though. It's not just the fact that she fell in love, it's also the fact that she immediately realized how easier her life would be if she was involved with someone like him. She really wanted to be a lawyer, and she wanted to be the one representing those criminals. But then she realized when she met him that it was much easier to hire a lawyer who would then represent you. Bojana comes to understand early on that being a criminal in post-Civil War Serbia was the better career move. If you had money, you could always hire a lawyer. And having seen where true opportunity lay, these three young people were developing their skill sets and putting together their team. Mladen was the leader of that gang at the moment. Bojana was Mladen's girlfriend. They were connected with Milan Lepoja because practically they were all working together. And then Milan was very, very close to Mladen during various heights they did together. And soon, the three friends are ready to move up to a new level. In the middle of the triangular border of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, lies a treasure of the European Alps, the Principality of Liechtenstein. Hardly anywhere else in Central Europe has experienced such a rapid transformation from a dreamy agrarian state into one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Welcome to Liechtenstein. Population 39,000. Small, rich, exclusive and virtually crime-free which makes it the perfect location for Mladen, Bojana and Milan to pull off their first major robbery together. They bring along a couple of trusted colleagues to help, including a handsome 29-year-old Bosnian named Dushko Poznan. As it happens, Dushko will also help on another job a year later, in March of 2007, at the Wafi Mall in Dubai. After scouting targets in an upscale shopping district in Liechtenstein's capital, Vaduz, the gang settles on the Huber watch and jewelry shop. 
Robert Wallner is a Liechtenstein prosecutor. They held uh, shop assistants at gunpoint and they broke into the glass lockers with a hammer and they stole uh, jewelry and cash and fled. The whole thing took about four minutes and then they left in a stolen car. That stolen car? You guessed it. It's an Audi, just like they'll use at the Waffy Mall. This time, it's an elegant blue A4. Everything about this robbery feels like a dress rehearsal. A young gang writing their playbook for the future. Though she might be new to the game, Boyana plays her part like a pro. While the others are loading up their bags with $700,000 worth of watches, she's behind the wheel of the Audi, engine running. When the masked robbers come sprinting out of the boutique, Boyana already has her foot on the gas. And... They're gone. The Liechtenstein police don't know what hit them. Liechtenstein is a low-crime country. We don't often have crimes committed like this. Obviously, our police is not so used to having this kind of criminal. After their initial shock, local law enforcement leaps into action, putting up roadblocks, deploying border guards, and notifying authorities in neighboring countries. But the young Pink Panthers disappear without a trace. Well, almost. They're not the perfect robbers. Our police found the car in Switzerland, and DNA was found in the car and in the shop. It is this DNA that would come into play one year later, when Ron Noble, an ambitious young American, becomes director of Interpol. Noble believes technology and cooperation are the keys to stopping criminals like the Pink Panthers. And he just might be right. And the same DNA found in an Audi in Switzerland in 2006 would eventually be connected to another heist over 4,000 miles away one year later in Dubai. Coming up next on Infamous International, the Pink Panthers story. It's been open season around the world for the Pink Panthers, but law enforcement might finally be catching up to them. It's the start of a manhunt. Uh, the cops learn about the apartment. They link DNA from the car and the apartment to a bunch of suspects, including Milan Lepoja. Both of them, they were feeling that they would be much safer in Serbia because once they come to Serbia, definitely they would be protected from Dubai police. But the police still have to combat the image the Pink Panthers and the media have managed to create. I think that this history created a figure of a glamorous celebrity criminal. When they were committing the robbery, they were not violent. But when you have a weapon in your face, psychologically, it was very violent for people. That's next time on Infamous International, The Pink Panthers Story. Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story, was produced by Best Case Studios in association with Coda Story. Hosted by me, Natalia Antlava, and written by Katrina Wolf, Adam Pinkis, Suzanne Myers, and David Markowitz, with help from Brent Katz and Matt Levin. For Best Case Studios, executive producer, Adam Pinkis, senior producer, 
David Markovitz. Producer Katrina Wolf, associate producer Hannah Libovitz Lockhart, and consulting producers Julie Goldstein and Louis Spiegler. For Coda Story, reporting by Lang Greenberg, with associate producer Rebecca Robinson. Edited and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Max Michael Miller. Music by Dave Harrington. Archival producers Magda Gora and Paul Dallas. This has been an exactly right production. Executive producers Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Danielle Kramer. With consulting producer Kyle Ryan. <laughs>